is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. We are breaking in to take you live to Sydney and to the former PM, Scott Morrison. In a press conference on Wednesday, Scott Morrison faced the fallout from secretly awarding himself extraordinary powers. I, as Prime Minister, was responsible pretty much for every single thing that was going on. Every drop of rain, every strain of the virus, everything that occurred over that period of time. During the course of his Prime Ministership, Morrison took on the health, finance, treasury, home affairs and resources portfolios, for the most part, without his colleagues, the respective ministers or the public knowing about it. Where there were authorities or powers that could be established, there was a clear expectation that I, as Prime Minister, would have sought to put those in place to protect the country and lead us through what was a very difficult period. He insists that he did nothing wrong. He says it was an extraordinary time that called for extraordinary measures. Those powers are exercised democratically by a democratically elected leader and were done so lawfully by me. Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about the fallout from Scott Morrison's secrecy. It's Friday, the 19th of August. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So Scott Morrison held a lengthy press conference on Wednesday to explain his reasons for appointing himself to five other ministries. Lenore, what reasons did he give and how do you think they stacked up? Uh, It was a hot mess and they didn't stack up is the short answer. (laughs) Um, I mean, honestly, it was such classic Scott Morrison and then when he sort of applied just a moment's thought to it, it really didn't make sense. Like he said... He didn't tell his ministers or he hadn't told his ministers about taking on these new portfolios. That was just a break glass in case of an emergency thing. It was no big deal. But then in the next breath he said he didn't tell them because he was worried that it might be misconstrued or misunderstood and undermine the confidence the ministers had in the performance of their duties. So it wasn't a big deal, but it was a big deal because they might get warrants in them. You know, again, it wasn't a big deal. But then in the next breath he says... He was worried there might be a threat to the national interest because of the unilateral action of an individual. So he was worried about them. I mean, everything he said, he pretty much contradicted in the next breath. You know, he said it started out at the beginning of COVID when he was really worried and concerned about what the pandemic would mean. And, you know, I think people putting the transparency issue aside and the fact that, you know, it was also secret, you can kind of understand that a government would be really kind of thinking things through and a bit panicking at the beginning of a pandemic. But then he had no explanation of why he took on another three portfolios more than a year later. I mean, really, every which way it didn't make sense. Yeah, I think about the first, I don't know, it felt like half an hour, but it was probably only 10 minutes of the press conference (laughs) was taken up with this sort of hark back to how terrible the pandemic was, which must have gave everyone bad memories of those endless press conferences during the actual pandemic when he would Mm. recap every single thing his government had done, saving 40,000 lives, et cetera, et cetera. 
throughout the past months before he actually got to the point of what he was going to say on that particular day. It was very much in that vein that led into the, I was in the middle of the tempest. You don't understand what it's like when we you're standing on the shore. We were all just lacing around on the shores. Right? Mm. To, to kind of give the impression that it was all about the pandemic, whereas in fact, as Lenore just said, two of the ministries were 14 months later, not in the early days of the pandemic when I guess there was a kind of case to be made that extraordinary measures were justified, although, again, that doesn't explain the secrecy. And also, I, I really love the bit where he was saying that no Prime Minister had ever had such trying and terrible circumstances to deal with. I mean, I don't know. I reckon Billy Hughes had World War One and the Spanish flu and John Curtin had a bit on his plate during World War Two. Like, seriously, you know, you get the hand you dealt and I have no truck with the idea that Scott Morrison had a very difficult time to lead the nation. But it's, I, I think, saying that it was unprecedented and he alone suffered such a tempest was a bit much, yeah. really. And in any case, the measures don't really make sense. Like, it doesn't take that long to swear someone else no. in. There could be a plane crash and half the cabinet yeah. could be killed, God forbid, and we would somehow cope with swearing new ministers in. It probably doesn't make sense to try to apply sense logic no. <laughs> because it was just as when i said like classic morrison to the to the max bluster non-sequiturs bulldozing his way through in his own words and just like talking over people and just trying to blind people with a lot of lot of words that really didn't make sense which i guess is what leaves everyone with questions like what was he actually thinking what mm -hmm. did he actually want to do because you know the explanations we've got don't really explain it what did you make of him saying, you know, the public, the media and the opposition held him responsible for every single thing that was going on, every drop of rain, every strain of the virus? <laughs> every drop of rain, right? Mm. We really held him responsible <laughs> for that. <laughs> Does it betray a lack of understanding of the Westminster system or a disregard? Of conventions. It does. I mean, the first obvious point is if he really felt under pressure to take responsibility for every drop of rain, why did he spend most of the press conference trying to avoid responsibility? You know, that's like question number one. But looking at it more broadly, yeah, you're right. There are conventions and understandings of how responsibility works in the Westminster system. The Prime Minister is the first among equals. Ministers are responsible and sworn in to be responsible for their portfolios and Cabinet is supposed to take decisions. And he didn't really <laughs> seem to sort of understand the import of any of that. We've talked before about Scott Morrison's lack of accountability about, you know, his instinct for secrecy. Should we be surprised by this? Absolutely not. I mean, it was classic Morrison. Even the in the morning before he gave the press conference, he went on 2GB radio and was asked whether there were more portfolios that he'd taken over other than the ones that we knew about at that stage and said he were maybe couldn't quite remember. He'd have to go and look it up. And then, like, Oh, yeah, uh, half, the Treasury. Half an hour later, Anthony Albanese re revealed that there was Treasury and Home Affairs, you know, relatively important portfolios. And then in his press conference, he was like, oh, yeah, they were the super important ones I had to make sure on national security grounds, et cetera, et cetera, potential to be in control of those. So it's like 
you forgot you were the treasurer and the home affairs minister. And he was the guy, you know, who was renowned in his prime ministership for not taking responsibility for things like, for example, the vaccine rollout. Remember when it wasn't a race and Mm -hmm. we hadn't ordered enough vaccines early enough and we were quite delayed in our vaccine rollout, which he dissembled over and wouldn't take responsibility for. And there was an audit office report just this week talking about how our performance there was not stellar. He wouldn't take responsibility for really important things like that, but then secretly he sort of thought he should take responsibility for everything. It was quite gobsmacking. The endless bypassing to the states and blaming yeah. the Victorian government for lockdowns and it was just became a, the whole theme of the pandemic, didn't it? Does all this make us re-examine his statements about not trusting in government that he made after he lost the election? We don't trust in governments. We don't trust in the United Nations, thank goodness. We don't trust all of these things, fine as they might be. And, and as- I'm not sure if, it, if we need to re-examine them, but it does put them in a kind of a really odd light that he apparently doesn't trust in the conventional way that governments have been run, that as the reaction to Wednesday's performance have shown are really important to a lot of people and are frankly outrageous. The way he went about appointing himself to these ministries has really shocked people, I think. And it does speak to a quite blatant disregard for maybe not government itself, but how government has traditionally and conventionally been run in Australia and conventions that are really important to a lot of people who thought thought the Liberal Party was one of the parties that, you know, would uphold these kind of relatively sacrosanct principles of ministerial accountability, but now it turns out they had a leader who had no regard for them whatsoever. It sort of sheds a unflattering light on how he views government generally. There's a lot of still a lot of unpacking to do about how his personal views impacted on the way he ran his government, I think. And Mike, what does it mean for the Liberal Party? I think in the immediate term, it's terrible for them because it's opened up huge divisions that were not visible before. There have been reports that Josh Frydenberg is livid that he wasn't told that he wasn't the only treasurer. (laughs) the government. Karen Andrews has called on Morrison to resign his seat. He doesn't have any full-throated defenders. Bridget McKenzie said it undermined the coalition agreement. Which Which is good. We don't don't know what that was. was (laughs) Because they're not transparent about it. And you can only imagine that when Parliament resumes, he's going to be an unwelcome presence on the back benches. And this is going to loom over them for a while. It's deprived them of, so far, at least a week of any opportunity to hold the government to account because no one wants to talk about anything else. And that's not going to end here. So it's put the Liberals in a really awful situation in the immediate term and probably in the longer term as well, because how can they go to the next election running on the record of their previous term in office when Mm. it's now been revealed to be, you know, it was already been rejected by the voters at the last election, essentially. And now the dysfunction and deception that was inherent in what Morrison specifically did has become visible, that makes it very hard for them Mm. to promote their own record in government. And also just the raw fact that their leader clearly didn't respect their most senior ministers, some of whom are still on their front edge. You know, that's a really hard thing to get around over, under, 
you know, it just sits there in the middle of the debate. What questions does the Governor-General have to answer, Lenore? I think there are quite a few questions for the Governor-General. I mean, I think he's absolutely right that he did have to act on the advice of the government of the day. But we don't know whether he asked why he was swearing the Prime Minister into a bunch of portfolios already occupied by other people, whether he asked for Morrison's reasons and direction in writing. We don't know whether he got his own advice from the Solicitor General or just relied on Scott Morrison's advice from the Attorney General. He says he had no reason to think that the existence of these other Prime Ministerial portfolios would not be communicated, but surely he did by the time it got to the second three because he knew the first two hadn't been. And, you know, did he tell the Queen, as Jenny Hocking asks in her comment piece today, you know, it would be quite a thing if the Queen knew and none of us did. What does it do for trust in politics, Lenore? Does it have an effect on how the public views our democracy? Um, Well, I think a lot of things the former government did had an effect on that. I mean, I don't know how many critical audit office reports there were, and I think it is important that the conventions are clearly outlined and that people can know that they will be adhered to in the future. So at the very least, I hope there is some sort of legislation requiring that the convention that we know who's the minister for what is actually adhered to. Mm. And, you know, I think it probably would be good for this to be referred to some sort of inquiry or parliamentary committee, just so people know what went on. I think the uneasy feeling of, well, if his reasoning doesn't make sense, what was it really about, is quite corrosive. And I think it would be good to be really clear and have it all on the record. I'm not sure what it means for Labor's approach on transparency more generally as well. In a way, you sort of feel it sets a low bar for them. Obviously, there are proposals in train for an integrity commission, which have been largely welcomed, although they don't fulfil all the recommendations of the crossbenchers. But does it sort of give them an opportunity to be more ambitious on transparency, for example, in relation to the freedom of information system, which, as we've often reported, is very largely broken? Or does it kind of give them space to just say, we're doing better than whatever we're doing, it's a lot better than what Scott Morrison's government was doing, and be satisfied with that? I sort of slightly fear the latter, but we shall see. And what is the media's role in staying on this story and making sure that there is greater transparency and accountability? Yeah, well, I think we do have to stay on the story. I mean, the Prime Minister is continuing investigations and will have more to say. And it sounded yesterday as though the Governor-General may also have more to say when the when the official investigation has concluded or when we've seen its findings. And I think we do need to explain it to people because trusting in what happened is really important. And the immediate story of Scott Morrison made no sense and this was typical Scott Morrison and the sort of reaction to that is one thing, but actually nailing down what went wrong and how it could not happen again takes longer, might not be as sexy, but is actually really important. Next, killing time and saving the Tasmanian tiger.
Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Lenore, what story stuck in your mind this week? Actually, it was two stories in our culture and lifestyle sections, which I didn't understand. The first one was in the culture section about a bloke who has 750,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel for long-form videos like an eight-hour spoken essay dissecting the final two seasons of a long-since cancelled Nickelodeon sitcom called Victorious. (laughs) Sign of our times. (laughs) Apparently I learned from this story by Matilda Bosley that ultra-long video essays have exploded in popularity on YouTube and that there is also a a two-and-a-half-hour look at the 2010 supernatural teen drama The Vampire Diaries or an hour-and-45-minute-long discussion about the socio-political roots of envy, which I had to look up, but is apparently a movie with Ben Stiller in it. Now, I just don't get this at all. Do these people have nothing to do? What is this about? I don't get it. And then there was another story, which I do get better, which was a 24-hour virtual reality film called Gondwana, which is sort of mapping 100 years of real-world data projections onto a simulated ecosystem in a rainforest. Now, I completely get the point of this one, and it sounds intriguing and moving. I just don't know, what do you do with the 24-hour film? (laughs) I mean, it's the time investment that I am just baffled by. And also, like, who would watch a one-hour and 45-minute YouTube video about a movie that I'd never heard of. I don't understand. That's that's all I have to say. I don't understand. So you don't want us to veer into eight-hour essays on YouTube? No, thank you. Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) Mike, what stuck in your mind? So my story this week is the one about bringing the thylacine back from extinction. The University of Melbourne has partnered with a US biotech company uh, to look into the genetic restoration of the Tasmanian tiger aka thylacine, and there's a lot of money behind it this time, $5 million, to open a new lab. I was just sort of massively torn about this story. It would be amazing to see a thylacine. It's incredibly tempting to Mm. get wholeheartedly behind this bid, but I actually think it's probably a really terrible idea. There are much better ways to spend $5 million on preventing extinction of animals that currently still do exist and preserving their habitat. So, yeah, much as the thylacine is incredibly charismatic and has a huge emotional pull on a lot of people in Australia and around the world, I sort of sense this is a bad way to go about things, but a fascinating debate nonetheless. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lenore. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks, Mike. Thanks. That's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, don't forget to hit subscribe wherever you're listening to your podcasts. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Daniel Simo. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson, that's me, and Miles Martignoni. I hope you have a great weekend and we'll see you on Monday. <laughs>